Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're glad to have you with us this morning. Um, uh, we're going to get started with worship. Uh, why don't we all stand if you're able? And let's uh, lift up and glorify the name of Jesus together. Oh, 
You may be seated. Most merciful God. Most merciful God, Heavenly Father, you are God and we are not. You hold us in the palm of your hand. You hold us, you guide us, you protect us, you save us. Thank you for keeping us safe through Tropical Storm Hillary and through the storms of life. When we don't know which way to go, when life seems overwhelming, you are there. When we feel on top of the world and everything seems perfect, you are there. Help us to call on you and to trust you in the hard times and to rejoice in you in the good times. Forgive us, Father, for the times we rage against you or deny you. When fear, anger, and pride get the best of us, we know you can take it, but we also know that it breaks your heart to see us hurting so. We don't want to break your heart. You long to heal us and restore us. Fill us with your presence, Father. Fill us with your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We know these fruits are already inside us because your Holy Spirit lives inside us. Help us to nurture and cultivate these fruits so that we can be nourished, so that those around us can taste and see that the Lord is good. Give us a hunger for you, to know you more, and to become more aware of our need for you and your love for us. Forgive us for the times we seek other things to satisfy the longings within us, within our soul. Only you can satisfy. You are the lover of our soul. You love us. What an amazing truth this is to us almost too incomprehensible for words, but it's true. Circumstances might try to tell us otherwise. Some people will try to tell us otherwise, but you remain true. Your word stands true forever. We stand in the truth of your word. We are strengthened and nourished by it. We grow strong when we eat the fruit of your love. We can share the truth of your love and your word and the fullness of your love. Lord, let your love guide and empower us. Let your love continue to guide Pastor Steve, Scott, and our church, our preschool, our nation, and all the leaders you have put in place. May they seek your guidance and wisdom. May they be driven and guided by your love. Lord, may all our thoughts, our decisions, our lives be guided by your love and mercy. Bless and comfort those who are still dealing with the devastation and loss of life from the fires in Maui. Be with us as we face the messes in our own lives. We know you make all things new. Help us to rest and trust in you as you make all things new. We love you, Father God. We worship and adore you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. 
If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we're so glad that you're here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out the Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. Hi, I'm Lainey. I've been coming to LJCC for several years now. I'm so grateful to be a part of the LJCC family and the family of God, where I can see and experience the love of God. Once I found out that the lift to my old van could no longer be serviced, I was devastated. When I brought the concern to my small group, one of the members offered to start a fundraising page on my behalf. With the help of friends and family and support from my LJCC family, by the grace of God, I was able to purchase and enjoy a new to me van with the necessary adaptive equipment to keep me going. Thanks to you, I have my life back. Thank you to everyone who has supported, encouraged, and loved me through this. As a fellow Christian and sister in Christ, I am forever grateful. May God bless you abundantly. Good morning. Good to be here with you. My name is Scott. Uh, you can think of me as kind of like a younger, more handsome, funnier version of Steve, if you know. <laughs> Oh, shoot, he's here this morning. <laughs> I think you're going to be here, Steve. Uh, but Lainey, thank you for that uh, wonderful prayer. Where, that was awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, what I'd love for you to consider, uh, all jokes aside, Steve, to me, has been such an important influence to me. If you've known him, if you've ever uh, bantered with him a little bit, you know his wit, you know his uh, kind of breadth of uh, topics and, and expertise, but he's also one of the kindest, uh, most humble guys that I know and has been so kind and generous to me over the years. So what I'd love for you to do is just think of the people in your life who've been like that for you, the kind of people that have invested in you, the kind of people whose life and example of who they are has made an impact on you. Uh, last night, my in-laws were in town, and we were having dinner, and they didn't ever get to the chance to meet my grandfather. He died before I started uh, dating my wife, and I was just telling them that they were asking me a bunch of stories about him, uh, and they knew how, how big of an influence he was for me. Uh, he was, you know, in, in all the people I've known, kind of the most heroic figure to me. Uh, it, and despite his flaws, he, which he had a lot, he, uh, the mark he, he uh, left on me and the kind of father that I am uh, is so much attributed to him. So I would love for you to consider who's that, that kind of person for you. Who are the, the kinds of people that have really been heroic to you uh, by the lives that they've left uh, and, and the legacy that they've left in your life? Uh, he had a lot of fun stories, uh, and I have a lot of uh, uh, amazing adventures with him. He was always thinking of kind of schemes of things to do with me. Uh, I, I remember, uh, kind of unfortunately, when I became an older teenager, he would knock on the door. He didn't live too far away, and he'd knock on the door. And as a teenager, I just kind of like rolled my eyes, like, oh my gosh, he's here again. And, and I wish I wasn't like that, obviously, just being a teenager. But uh, when I was like 10, 11, 12, he would come over once or twice a week with some scheme, some idea, something to do with me. 
Uh, he, he created a business. We, we built a business together when I was 11 and 12 where he did all this research and found out that snails, maybe you know this, snails, which are a problem for gardens, can't move backwards. Uh, they, can't, they can only move forwards, which is, there's got to be a metaphor there for something, but they can never move backwards. Uh, like, be a snail, you know? Um, but because of that, if you uh, create a snail barrier where they get stuck, they will actually die, and they can't enter your garden. So my grandfather built this technology where he and I would go door-to-door. Me, 10, 11 years old, would knock on. He taught me how to sell door-to-door, and we would go and sell, like, hey, do you have snail problems in your yard? (laughs) Did you know? And we ended up having this business together for two years, and I look back now as an entrepreneur that I've done for the last 15 years of my career, and there's some early seeds of that uh, from him. One of my favorite stories being with him, he uh, uh, got into model rockets one day. I don't know why or how, but I, I came over one day, and he's like in the garage. He's like, come here, i got to show you something. And he's like, uh, um, my grandmother, Nana. He's like, Nana doesn't want me to show you this, but I'm going to show you anyways. I've got some explosives out here. And uh, we went out to this field and started launching model rockets. And whatever my grandfather did, he liked to do it bigger. And so the next time I went over, he had this like six-foot-tall rocket that he found, I mean, this is pre-internet, so like from a catalog, and, and uh, it came, and, and he was so excited to have me. We went out to the field, and uh, I remember, I mean, he's like getting so, like a kid, and he launches it up, and we're both looking up in the air, and at some point, I mean, I could barely see it, but he looks at me, and he goes, the parachute didn't open, <laughs> which I don't know if you can imagine a six-foot rocket that's like, I don't know how many thousands of feet in the air, which I'm sure was not FAA regulated. Uh, and if that thing, so it's coming right back down to us, in other words. And he's like, it didn't open. I don't know what choice word to use, but he, all he said is, run. And we both scatter running. And so I remember just running for my life. Like <laughs> The rocket's going to come through my head. And sure enough, it, it landed near him into the ground. It went about four feet into the turf. Uh, and, and, oh, Nana was so mad. <laughs> uh, but I also knew growing up that he was a, a part of World War II, and he never really talked about it. Maybe those of you who had parents or grandparents uh, know that there was some sensitivity around that topic. Uh, the stories he would tell that we continue to kind of laugh about today, uh, his two favorite stories. One, he was in a German town. He's a 19-year-old army medic in a German town, and he and a buddy noticed that there's a ceremonial um, cannon in the middle of this town square. And they thought it would be funny in the middle of the night to go off and light off the cannon. So they did. And then they, they hid while the entire town, like the, the base of operations just panics, of course, because they think they're being fired upon, and he and his friend are just off laughing. And his whole point was, I was just a stupid kid, 19 years old, in the army in Germany. He got a Purple Heart, which uh, that was his other favorite story to tell. He was in a German town, and he would always say, we were liberating things from the German town, and he and another friend found a beer keg in a basement, and so they were liberating it for the Allied forces. And on, uh, going up the stairs, he, he drops, they dropped the keg, and it landed on his foot, and it broke his foot. So he was injured in a combat zone, and so he had a, got, he had a purple heart. And he was uh, treated in a maternity hospital <laughs> in Germany. That was his other favorite story. He was like, I woke up, but I didn't know if I was pregnant or not. Uh, but the story he'd never shared was the story about how he got a silver star. And I knew he had it. My grandmother would wear it sometimes on a necklace. And I would all, you know, often ask, but he just kind of didn't want to talk about it. But I, 
a, a few years ago, I was reading this book. There's a series by Bill O'Reilly, uh, The Killing. It's like historical uh, books, Killing Jesus, Killing Lincoln. They're, I love them. They're killing Kennedy. Fantastic books. There's maybe a dozen of them. One of them is about killing Patton. And in the book, I'm reading it, and I started to recognize that the, the particular part of this book really zeroes in on the time, the month or two, uh, when my grandfather was inserted into uh, Germany uh, in the army. And I'm reading it, and it's a fantastic book, but I started to kind of see the color as I'm reading these stories of, of battle, gruesome battle scenes, right around the Battle of the Bulge. He went in right after, a couple weeks after that in January. And I'm just, I mean, just taken aback by what he must have seen as a medic and what he must have experienced. And no wonder he didn't like to talk about it. And while I was reading that book a few years ago, I, I just decided to uh, Google search his name. I'd never done that before. Uh, he's been, he died in 2001, so uh, a lot of the memories that, that he told are, are gone. Uh, the stories, we kind of have vague uh, memories of them, but I, I found this on the internet. Uh, it's right, you just Google his name, and here it is. Uh, uh, the President of the United States of America, authorized by the Act of Congress, takes pleasure in presenting the Silver Star to Private First Class Richard Oliver Brumley, the United States Army, for gallantry in action while serving with Company B, uh, 363rd Medical uh, Battalion, blah, blah, blah. Uh, without regards for his personal safety, Private First Class Brumley dashed across 30 yards of open ground under enemy fire in order to gain a defilated route to a hilltop pillbox that contained four uh, contained four wounded men. As he crawled up the hill, he encountered and treated one severely wounded man. Upon reaching his objective, he treated the wounded and successfully evacuated them with the aid of newly captured prisoners. Private First Class Brumley's outstanding gallantry in action under fire is in keeping with the finest traditions of the medical department and reflect great credit upon himself and the armed forces of the United States. And I wish I could have asked him that story because the you know, it's embedded in there. I heard some of you kind of react to it. He, there's four wounded men. He treated a wounded man on the way up. He's taking fire. And somehow, with probably a pistol because he was a medic, he takes German newly captured soldiers and gets them to carry the wounded uh, on his side, our side, back to, uh, back to cover. I just, um, you know, the, the wherewithal of that at 19, uh, the, as he would say, I was just a stupid kid. But I look back, and I, I've, I've been telling my son particularly these stories of his great-grandfather, and I just continue to talk about his, uh, his gallantry in action. And uh, there's something about those kinds of stories that has, um, has residue in our lives, has an impact, uh, has, an, uh, it has a, an effect that stays with us. And I want to be like him. I want to be as generous as he was, as kind as he was, as funny as he was. I want to apologize to people like I saw him do so many times when he put his foot in his mouth time and time again. I want to uh, come up with adventures with my kids and my grandkids, just like he would, and I want to be the kind of hero to someone else that he was to me. What we're talking about this morning is this uh, idea of legacy. I think everybody, I know I do, I'm sure you do too, I want to leave a positive legacy. And I'm sure if we went down the route and I googled all your names, there's, there's probably uh, uh, none of us that can escape having some legacy that we're not proud of. There's some decisions that we've made, either things that we've done or things that we didn't do that we regret and wish we had done it differently. If we had only known at that age, at that time, and what we know now, you know, that kind of thing. But at the, at the fundamental base of who we are, we want to leave an impact. We want people to be telling stories about us 20 years later. We want people to remember us and want to become like us. That is just hardwired into who we are. 
And what we're going to talk about this morning is uh, kind of with that, with that concept, that theme of legacy, uh, I want to ask the question, what does, it, what does it look like to leave a legacy but in Christ? What does it look like to be people of faith and think very intentionally about the kind of legacy that we live, leave? So I'm going to pray for us and then invite us as we uh, walk through a, a, a quick story from the Old Testament, a quick uh, a story that can kind of serve as a symbol for all of us. Uh, and, and I'm going to close with... Um, with an exercise that I'd love for you to do and consider doing maybe today or this week. So would you pray with me? Uh, thank you, Lord, that we could be here together and that we could um, reflect on the people who've made the most impact in our lives. And I, and I know we all want to uh, be the kinds of people that influence others and make a, make a mark, leave a mark of good, to be people of faith uh, that by the choices that we make, there will be others in our path behind us who want to emulate the choices that we do. So I pray, God, this morning that you would open up our hearts, help us, even especially for those of us who've got some uh, parts of our past, parts of the choices that we've made in the past that we regret. I pray that you would uh, be gentle with us and lead us to look through the lens of redemption to see who we can become and the kind of legacy that we can leave. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to look at a, at a quick story. Uh, it's, it's kind of a long chapter, but it's a really quick story. It comes from Joshua chapter 4, and in the, in the context of uh, Israel's story, we're probably familiar, obviously, with uh, God coming through Moses and rescuing the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. And there's this really profound moment uh, in that story, maybe you saw The Prince of Egypt as the animated movie, uh, if that rings a bell better, uh, where God parted the, the Red Sea, and the entire nation of Israel went through the Red Sea, parted. Now, how do we take that and understand that as a historical fact? I don't know, but it's a powerful story and, and a symbol of what God did to rescue the people out of slavery. And then the Israelites spent what turns out to be 40 years in the desert, wandering, trying to find their way, uh, trying to find their way to the land that they're going to inhabit, and in a larger kind of uh, meta theme, what God is doing during that time is, is teaching them who he is. Uh, he's, he's instructing them over 40 years uh, how to be in a relationship with the God of the universe and how to be uniquely uh, identified with him. And it, as the kind of 40 years wraps up, it's now time as God's leading them uh, to go into what we're, you know, we call now the promised land and what uh, in the Bible is called the promised land. And there's another parting of the, of the waters, it's kind of the, the little, uh, little uh, cousin of the first one. And that's where we're going to read it. Uh, when all the people had crossed the Jordan, uh, so right in Joshua chapter 3, uh, uh, Joshua is the new leader. Moses had just died. Joshua instructs the, the people with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark where God's uh, uh, kind of the pillar of fire and the presence of God would, be, would reside, to step out into the waters of the Jordan River. And all of a sudden what the, the Bible talks about is uh, the rivers upstream slowly dissipated. And the rivers downstream just kind of went away. And now all of a sudden there's this path for about two million people to walk through. And it says uh, in, uh, in, in uh, verse 1, When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take twelve stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men he had chosen, one from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. He told them, Go into the middle of the Jordan, in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder, 
12 stones in all, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the men did as Joshua had commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, one for each tribe, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the place where they camped for the night and constructed the memorial there. Joshua also set up another pile of 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, at the place where the priests who had carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they are there to this day. Uh, The priests who were carrying the Ark stood in the middle of the river until all of the Lord's commands that Moses had given to Joshua were carried out. Meanwhile, the people hurried across the riverbed, and when everyone was safe on the other side, the priests crossed over with the ark of the Lord as the people watched. I won't read the rest uh, because it really just continues to share the same story. But in the last verse, uh, it says again in verse 21, In the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, this is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. One of the interesting parts of this, to me, they had yet, as they built this memorial, they had yet to go into the promised land where there was going to be hardship. There were people occupying that land. It wasn't just this random tract housing that was all set up for them, new development. There were people in towns in Jericho, if you remember that story, is waiting for them. They have to go into battle, really, for years. And there were going to be moments, I think God knew there were going to be moments where the people who were uh, leading the, there's 40,000 armed soldiers leading that charge, we're going to say, this is too hard. We want to go back. Back in the desert, we were safe there. It's the same story of the Israelites in the desert the first 40 years. They kept saying, why don't we just go back to slavery in Egypt? It was better there. At least we had uh, housing and meals, and, and we knew what our jobs were, and we, we actually knew who we were as slaves. Uh, it's like God knew that they were going to have troubles as they entered into the promised land, and they were going to be tempted to go back across, back to the desert. And those stones were going to be there to say, remember what God has done. Tell your kids that. Remember what God has done. When I was uh, 19, uh, I was a student at USD, and I started to uh, have, for the first time in my life, questions about faith. I had never, um, you know, my entire family, my grandfather included, were not people of faith. We didn't go to church. Um, I didn't have any religious questions, no conversations. No one ever, I think one time there was a girl in seventh grade invited me to a harvest crusade, and I thought that was weird. That was like the only kind of religious uh, experience that I'd had, but I decided to go to USD because it was a pretty school and there were cute girls there. And while I was there, I was dating this girl, and she was going to school at Point Loma, which if you're not familiar with Point Loma, it's a very, uh, um, even back then, it was even more highly identified as a Christian school. Every student had to go to chapel multiple times a week. And I was not having a good experience, both kind of as a teenager through high school, but I was not having a good experience as a freshman at USD. This felt extremely lonely. I felt very lost. I felt very anxious. It felt to me like everyone else was having this fantastic time, and I wasn't. And there was something wrong with me. And I was, uh, this is like early internet, so I don't know if you remember AOL, uh, the dial-up. I would be uh, messaging friends who I went to high school with who were now across the country at different schools. And every message seemed to be, I know it's not true, but every message seemed to be, 
I'm having the best time of my life. Are you? Oh, you're not? There must be something wrong with you. That's, I just, every day I come back to my dorm room and, and just, I mean, I guess, I don't know. And, and, but yet there was this girl that I was just infatuated with. And to me, again, if I couldn't have said this at the time, but in hindsight, my concept, my theory was, if I could just get her like, to marry me or whatever, like, like fully kind of with me, then everything will be better. Then everything will be okay. I mean, you know, that's not true to an 18, 19-year-old kid, but that's how I thought at the time. And I remember her saying to me uh, at some point, hey, uh, and she's at Point Loma, my friends at Point Loma are kind of questioning us seeing each other. And I was like, oh, why? And they said, uh, or she said, because they, they're, they're, like, you're not a Christian. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm a nice guy. And she's like, I know you're a nice guy, but there's a whole, there's a different thing that's happening. And I said, well, that's crazy. I'm like a really nice guy, but I'll do kind of whatever it takes for this relationship to continue. So I had this idea, first day, freshman year, uh, what if I take her to church? And what if I take her friends to church? I was the one that had a car. They didn't. So I uh, remember phone books? <clears throat> it was. If you don't know what that is, <coughs> there was a phone book dropped off at every dorm, and I opened up the, the phone book to the church section, and I looked at, and I just skimmed through, and there's little, you know, there's lots of churches, and I picked this church. It's called College Avenue Baptist Church. And here's, a, here's my research. College Ave, that sounds like a college church. It's just the street. And Baptist, I've heard of them. So I call up my girlfriends and I say, hey, uh, tomorrow, why don't I take you to church? And she's like, oh, wow. Like, I didn't think you'd want to go. So I go pick them up and I show up at College Avenue Baptist Church. And if you uh, were, ever went there, especially in the um, mid to late 90s, it was this, like, uh, the most dynamic church in town, in all of San Diego. And it was this place where the, uh, a church kind of broke off called Flood, which was a, a unique kind of expression for college students. So I walk in, and I'm listening to this guy named Mark Strauss uh, teach the Bible from up front. Mark Strauss, now I know, he was later on a seminary professor of mine. Mark Strauss is one of the guys who's translated the Bible. Uh, he's one of the most kind of well-known theologians across the world. And there he is up front just kind of explaining how do you understand. And his whole thing was not just to kind of read the Bible and, and, and have a nice little thought. He wanted people to understand what the Bible was all about and, and the context and history. And he would, I mean, it just was like a professor meets a pastor meets a preacher meets a motivational speaker all up front. Again, I don't know anything, so I'm just like, oh, this is not bad. And over the course of the freshman year, I continued to take her. Again, I have no spiritual interest. I just want her to like me. I remember hanging out with her friends, and we're dri- as I'm driving them back and forth to church, they're talking about Bible things, which I know nothing about. I didn't know who Jesus was, Mary, Paul, Peter. I didn't know anybody. And uh, was a, a couple days later, I just remember feeling like, gosh, I, I don't, I don't want to feel stupid in conversations. I don't want to feel like an outsider. And I was on campus, and I was walking by, and you know the Gideons Bibles that they have in hotel rooms sometimes? Uh, there's guys that are Gideon guys, and they go to public places, especially college campuses, or at least they used to, and they hand out little Bibles. And I remember walking by on campus, and the guy just basically puts a Bible into my hand. It's a little tiny green New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, I remember just thinking, uh, uh, again, I have no spiritual interest. I'm like, that's, I don't know, that doesn't feel right to me. And I kind of hand it, and I intend to throw it away. I don't, want to, I don't want your Bible. Like, what are you doing to me? It's like, uh, to me, it's the same as someone trying to get me to vote for something. Just leave me alone. And because I'm late to class, instead of throwing away, I just stick it in my bag and I forget about it. 
So a few days later, when I'm feeling stupid in a conversation with a bunch of Christian kids, I just, I'm like, oh, how about I just read the Bible? And then I won't feel so stupid. And so I went home. I didn't even tell this to the girl because I didn't want her to think that I was like trying to win her over. And I would have done anything, even to read the Bible, I guess. And I started to read the Bible, and I read the entire New Testament and then all the Psalms and all the Proverbs. And then I'm starting now in conversations to kind of try to like fit in. I'm like, hey, it kind of reminds me of what I think it was Paul said in, uh, what was that, Corinthians. I mean, I, and I can somehow navigate the discussion with them. And so towards the end of the year, again, I have no spiritual interest. This is just a, a scheme to get a girl to like me. Uh, at the, towards the end of that school year, it was kind of headed back into summer. And uh, where, we were in, where I lived in Orange County is where she also lived. And she just uh, called me out one day and she said, you're way too into me. And I was like, I, you know, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And she's like, you're too into me. And it just feels too intense. And I just don't think, and what she did was in a moment, finally, after like a year, uh, she essentially starts to uh, share with me why I don't need her, why I need Jesus. And I just was like so frustrated with like, that's such a silly, stupid idea. I need you. I don't need this invisible thing. I need you. Like you're, you are, I can't. And she just kind of, and just uh, slowly backs out and breaks up with me. So I'm home for the summer, now super alone. Now all my friends are coming back from college, and they had the best year. They're all in fraternities, and they all have girlfriends, and they're doing well in school, and none of them are anxious. I mean, at the 10-year reunion, we all admitted everybody was feeling the same thing. But at the time, I, I thought it was just me. And I took a job in an accounting department in a, in a company, because I was an accounting major, and I walk in, and the, my boss, the first day, it's 40 hours a week, three months, and I walk in, and my boss says to me, and at first she hands me, like, stacks of real paper, not computers, but, like, real paper, and she said, this is going to be a really boring job for you this summer. I was like, wow, okay. And then she says, why don't you bring in music? Do you have, like, a, a you know, music to listen to? I said, okay. So I go home, and the only thing I could find was a radio. You probably remember radios, and I had speakers. They had to plug them in. It was insane. But I come back the next day, and I have my radio and headphones, and I'm trying to, and I didn't bring a tape, I didn't have CDs, just a radio, and I'm trying to find a radio station, and nothing. There's no reception in this whole building until I get all the way to the top, and it's this station 107.9, which is in Orange County uh, called K-Wave, 107.9. And I'm like, Oh, gosh. <laughs> I have to, this is it. And K-Wave, at the time, it's still true. Uh, throughout the day, they play maybe an hour, hour and a half of worship music. But the rest of the time are 30-minute uh, sermons. It's all Calvary Chapel, 30-minute sermons all throughout the day. And then from 3 to 4, back in the day when I was there, they'd have a Bible call-in show. So three or four pastors and people just calling in with all, their, all the same questions that I was having. Like, what about the dinosaurs? And... <laughs> uh, what, you know, just kind of every question you can imagine, they're just talking them through. So for three months, eight hours a day, I listened to Christian radio. And, it was, and I was listening to sermons after sermon. I was listening to Greg Laurie. I was listening to uh, um, all the Calvary Chapel guys. And I remember at this one moment, I kept trying to get this girl back. And I was even kind of showing her, like, I'm listening to Christian radio. And I just remember there was a moment where she had said it again. It's not happening. You are putting me in a place, a pedestal that I do not deserve, and I cannot ever fill this part of your heart. And she just, like, preached right into me. She knew who I was, and she knew what I was going after, and she knew that it wasn't going to work. And, and thankfully, she shut it all down. 
And I'm sitting there at uh, lunch one day in my car, driving through McDonald's, getting chicken McNuggets, and I'm 19 years old, and I'm just broken. And I am listening to this guy named Greg Laurie, who every single day from 1230 to 1 would have essentially the same sermon, you need Jesus, <laughs> your soul's lost without him, uh, don't worry, he's got your back, believe in him and you'll have life to the full, you'll have salvation, like just the same message every single day, and I'm sitting there, and I've listened to that every single day for two and a half months from 1230 to 1, I heard the same sermon, never, I mean, it did nothing for me, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just so in need of rescue from who I am and where I'm going and the kind of life that I'm living. And I pray the prayer just like he tells me to do and nothing happens. Except I guess I prayed a prayer. There's no magical moment. There was no emotional uh, charge. I'm by myself with Chicken McNuggets and that's it. And I remember thinking like, okay, <laughs> if angels are rejoicing, it's with some sweet, uh, sweet and sour uh, sauce and Chicken McNuggets. I went back to school four days later and I didn't even remember this but right at the end of that freshman year, a girl that I'd grown up with came up to me and she said, hey, Scott, we need people, we need guys to live in this particular dorm, in this apartment up in the Vistas. And she said, we're having a hard time. We have like 64 girls and there's only like 16 guys. And I was like, great math. I'm in. And then she told me other things, but I wasn't listening because I was like, that's the best place to live. Sounds like there's gonna be a lot of girls there. Deal. So three or four days later, after I accept Christ, I'm back in, moving in with these people I didn't know, and it turns out it's the ministry floor. And not just the ministry floor, but I ended up, uh, kind of fast forward, I ended up uh, getting involved in ministry and then working in ministry for 10 years in college ministry. And uh, in hindsight, maybe a year and a half later, uh, the, the people who lived on that floor that I lived with and uh, in, in, in the kind of subsequent ministry that was formed and created, both on the, on the Catholic ministry side and also this ministry called InterVarsity that I was a part of, uh, people around the country, just a year and a half later, were flying into USD because the word had been spreading that there was a revival happening on this Catholic campus in San Diego. And uh, uh, because dozens and dozens and dozens of students just like me were coming to faith not by any sort of strategy. There wasn't any magic. There wasn't a, um, like a, a compelling speaker that was coming. It just, something was happening. And all those people I lived with, I didn't know any other way because I'd never participated really in anything. But uh, people were just like uh, starting spontaneous worship. Like you just hear someone with a guitar playing in, in a dorm room and you just walk in. And all of a sudden you're like singing songs to Jesus and, and praying for each other at, at 19, 20 years old. And, uh, uh, and all of a sudden, like, 40 people would show up. They just heard the music, and they came in. And then people uh, are saying, like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, well, we're, we're talking about Jesus. And they're like, who's Jesus? And we're like, oh, well, and it, we'll tell you. And all of my best friends, uh, all the groomsmen in my wedding, my wife was in that floor. She lived a few doors down. She was my Bible study leader that entire year. Uh, we kind of came to faith during that time. Now, I look back. I look back on that season, and I see myself in the tractor beams of the Holy Spirit. Like, I know free will. I get it, sort of. I know I had a choice. I know I didn't have to, to respond. I didn't have to listen to that radio. I, uh, I didn't have to take her to church. I didn't have to uh, keep the Bible. I didn't have to read it. I didn't have to open up my heart. I didn't have to. Like, those are all choices. But I look back, and I think all those patterns, all those coincidences, all the, the environment, it was like I was just caught up in something. 
And I, uh, still to this day, I look at the trajectory of how my life turned just by dating that girl. I mean, all those series of decision points, I look at the trajectory of who I've become and what I've done and what I've been a part of and what I've seen and the God I've gotten to know, and I look at the other side of who I would have been without that. And that, to me, is the closest thing that I can imagine as a nightmare. Uh, maybe you saw that movie, Family Man, with Nicolas Cage. Um, love a good Nick Cage movie. And, and it's, uh, it's kind of a Christmas, um, uh, like a Charles Dickens ripoff. And this uh, very wealthy guy who's all alone ha- wakes up one day, and he's in this ulterior dimension of what his life could have been if he had just kind of uh, leaned into generosity and kindness, and he chose not to. He, he chose to pursue his ego and, and pursue pride. And it's this actually pretty wonderful story, but I, I remember watching that movie, and I'm like, I, I understand that movie. I understand who I would be at, at now at 43 years old. I understand the kind of dad I would have been. I understand the kind of person I would have turned into. I understand. I can see it. I can feel it. There's a part of me in there, and I know deep in my bones that God has rescued me. He's rescued me. And I'm realizing that I need to, at this point in my life, uh, having kids who are 17 and 14 and 10, I need to figure out a way to build a memorial to let them know that story. They don't know that story, really. They kind of know I didn't grow up in church. I mean, they've probably heard it a little bit over the years, but there's nothing that I've done to say, look at this. I want to tell you every single year, again and again, this is who I would have been if it wasn't for Jesus. This is who I would have been if God hadn't pursued me. This is, this is the kind of person I would have turned into, a different kind of person. I want them to see the stones of my life of what God has done and what God has rescued me from. And that's what I want to invite you to do as an exercise in response to this. I, I, want, I want to encourage you to think about what God has rescued you from. And, and do the people that are important to you know that? Have you told them that story? Have you kind of sat them down and say, hey, I know, I, I know I've maybe told you this before, or you kind of knew some of the details, but I just want to tell you this story again. This is who I am. I want the people that are in my influence, the people in my family, my friends, the people that come after me, I want my legacy to be what God has done in my life. That's what it means to leave a legacy in Christ. The stories of what God has done and rescued me from, the, the ways in which God has shown up with his power and his kindness and his redemption, I want the people in my life to know that. I mean, yeah, they'll know my career. Yeah, they'll know where the trips we went on and, and there'll be photo albums and somewhere in the cloud it'll all be organized eventually and music will be put to it. But the stuff that matters is what God has done in my life. And that's what matters in your life too. So what does it look like for you today, this week, to write it down? And you don't need permission to share those stories, to share those stones, to share that memorial. Just share it. Record it on your phone as a video and just send it to them. That's literally what I'm going to do with my kids. I'm going to send them this video whenever Joshua puts it up on YouTube. And I'm going to tell my older kids, and I'm going to tell you, she won't care, but my 17 and 14 year old say, watch minute between this and that. Just watch it, please. That's all I'm asking you. And then you can, I don't know, I'll take you to Starbucks. Like, I'll bribe you or I'll threaten you. I'll take your phone away if you don't. I'll turn off Instagram. Like, so I want them to see and know who the God is to me. That's the kind of legacy I want to live. So what's your legacy going to be? What has God done in your life? What has God rescued you from? What can you say that God, if, if it wasn't for him, it wouldn't have happened? Uh, because of him, this happens. Because of him, I am this kind of person. I think this way. I act this way. What is your legacy? Let's pray.
God, you, uh, you move. You move in my life and our lives. You have done things. You have rescued us. Uh, there are things you've done in us and through us that we haven't even really seen or understood yet, but I pray that you would help us to see glimpses of it. We want to be the kind of people that share you with others. We want to be the kind of people that when people think about us and talk about us, they would also associate you with us. That you've rescued us, you've saved us, you've, you've set us on a new identity, a new purpose, you've, uh, you've rearranged parts of our lives, you've freed us from addiction, you've healed our marriages, you've, uh, you've uh, rescued us from self-hatred, you've, you've taken away anxiety and depression in our lives, you've given us meaningful relationships, you've given us meaningful work. Uh, I, I want other people to know that. And so bring that to mind, Lord. Bring those things to mind. Give us the courage to share if we need it. And I pray that people would see you through the stories of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Part of legacy, of course, is the generosity that we offer. And I would love for you to consider your generosity as you share in uh, the gifts and offerings, which you can do. There's a box in the back. Also, could do it online. There's some information in your bulletin. Uh, but to consider the ways in which we give uh, also demonstrates how God has been meeting us and, and the ways in which we offer uh, uh, the resources God has given us is an opportunity for us to say, this is the Lord. This is what God is doing.
in the Welcome Center, we're doing a service project for the Bannister Family House, putting together some welcome kits. We'd love to have your help, even if it's just for a minute or two. It'll go to get, uh, really smoothly if we're all pitching in. Now, may God the Father bless you with wisdom. May God the Son remind you of how much he's rescued you because you were loved by him. And may God the Spirit help you remember that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 